Um, I did have a note or two about the last episode. Yeah. Last episode, um, I said Tim the Yowie Man sighting was in 1944. Uh, I misspoke. It was actually in 1994. I realized that when I was listening <laughs> back to the episode. I was like, why did I say 44? It definitely doesn't say that in my notes. Um, I think my... Your brain just did something. Yeah, I think my brain just makes the it's two fine. up. It's um, fine. It works. So yeah, it was 1994, not 44. <laughs> The only other thing that I can think of, I watched a TikTok of this person who makes earrings or makes jewelry and sells them on Etsy and she has these earrings called uh, tiny red dress earrings. There are two different colors. There's like a blue sky edition and then um, just like regular like white background ones Mm -hmm. and if you buy them on uh, on Etsy then the proceeds go to like families of missing and murdered indigenous women and events um for missing and murdered indigenous women in Canada oh my gosh yes and her Etsy is Christine can bead um c-h-r-i-s-t-i-n-e-c-a-n-b-e-a-d Christine can bead on Etsy. I got one of each color because they were just so A, cute, and B, the proceeds went to a really good cause. Yeah, so I highly recommend them. Um, Mine should be arriving in a couple of days. Go do that. They're super cool. I am going to favorite her shop. Okay. Okay. So, Rachel, where are we this week? No, wait, hold on. Hello. Hello. The eighth time is a slightly a charm. Slightly. Okay. Oh, um, wow. Hi. I'm Rachel, and as I'm not even facing my microphone, I'm Rachel, and that is Grace. I'm Grace, and that is Rachel. Uh, welcome back to the podcast. Woo-woo. What episode are we on? Oh, this is episode 69. <laughs> <laughs> Noise. Noise. Was just trying to help lead you into that so you wouldn't forget again. Noise. Yeah, I definitely You definitely forgot. I was gonna forget, yes. Um Noise. Noise. It's the last time. Last time, last time, last time. Okay. Okay. Where are we this week, Rachel? We are in Parkersburg, West Virginia. Wow. Wow, what really? So my sources are parkersburgcity.com and wikipedia.org. This is a, another city with very little information about the history and very little information about early settlers prior to the European colonization. Yeah, I almost told you to go for the county at one point. <laughs> I probably should have. Would have been a nice longer history. And I almost did try to do like West Virginia as a whole, but then I was like, no, that would be different tribes living in different yeah. places because there's Plus, the coast and then there's the Midland and right. Plus we've been in Virginia, West Virginia before. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I really did start. I had like a good paragraph and then I was like, nah. Yeah. Nah. So we'll just go with what I found on the internet. So the city of Parkersburg was originally named Newport in the 18th century, just after the American Revolutionary War. This was part of a migration from Virginia towards the Atlantic Ocean, you know, we're, we're spreading. However, a section of the town that was laid out on the land had been granted to a man named Alexander Parker for the services he performed during the Revolutionary War. Because this was actually something Virginia did. They would just grant land to veterans for their war services. So obviously this guy fought because the land was legally his. 
and in 1809, the title conflict was settled in favor of Parker and his heirs. The town was then renamed Parkersburg in 1810, it was chartered in 1820, and then chartered as a city in 1860. In 1857, a railroad branch line was built just south of the town. Travelers who wanted to connect between the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad and the Marietta and Cincinnati Railroad would have to have taken a steamboat 14 miles north to Marietta, Ohio. This also drew in a lot of trade for the city. During the Civil War, Parkersburg served as a transportation and medical center for the Union forces. It was then further developed as a main transportation hub in the gas and oil boom following that war. In fact, in the late 19th century, Parkersburg was a major oil refining center. Then after World War II, the city became one of the leading industrial centers of the Ohio Valley, producing chemicals, glass, tools, textiles, plastic, polymers, iron, and steel. Fun fact, the movie Dark Waters, which was released in 2019, was based on events that happened there. From my understanding, the synopsis is that it's about a legal case against the chemical manufacturing corporation known as DuPont, who had contaminated the town with unregulated chemicals. I've never heard of that. Never heard of it. Um, It's got yeah. Mark Ruffalo in it. It's got the whole... Mm. Ah, okay. So if you would like to visit the city post-COVID, you could go and visit the Oil and Gas Museum, the Blennerhasset Island Historical State Park, Fort Borman Park, or the Parkersburg Art Center. Cute. That is short. Concise. So Grace, what is your Oof. story? So my story today is the murder of Leslie Diane, well, the murder and disappearance mm-hmm. of Leslie Diane Marty. Oh. So my sources are unsolvedappalachia.org, court documents found on law.justia.com, the Charlie Project, a News and Sentinel article by Evan Bevins, a Marietta Times article also by Evan Bevins, a WTAP news article by Dennis Bright and Todd Boucher, a WDTV news article with no listed author, a West Virginia Metro news article by Chris Lawrence, and a WVAH three-part exclusive on the case by Kenny Bass. Okay, because I know that we had talked about it before, the Charlie Project, it profiles uh, cold cases of missing people. So it struck a chord. That's why I had to had to look. Yes, there um, is a bit of a twist about, well, you'll see. Okay. Okay. So, Leslie Diane Marty was born January 15th, 1963 in Parkersburg, West Virginia to Mary Brown and Clark Marty. It looks like there wasn't a lot reported about her specifically other than she loved sewing, boating, and she was always there to lend a helping hand to others in need. She also had a son named Joseph who she Mm -hmm. adored. At around, I'm assuming around 19 based on the timeline and the the description of the events that she was 19 around the time uh, she moved in with her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Mark Francis Hanna. Mm-hmm. They lived together intermittently, but at about six months, their relationship had started to deteriorate, which led to frequent arguments and episodes of domestic violence. After another six months, Leslie had met someone else, a man named Dwight Norman, and planned on ending, ending things with hannah Mm -hmm. and of course anyone who knows anything about abusive relationships knows that's easier said than done yeah mark hannah claims that on july 29th 1983 he spent the night with leslie and the next day the two argued over her plans to go water skiing with dwight in the afternoon because hannah didn't want her to spend time with dwight Leslie was supposed to meet Dwight around noon, but didn't show up until 1 p.m. with Hannah having driven her to Dwight's house in Wood County. Mm -hmm. When they arrived, they were arguing, and before leaving Leslie there, Hannah introduced himself to Dwight and stated that Leslie was, quote, pissed off because he had, quote, kidnapped her. What? Yeah, like he was acting like he was making like a some smart joke or something. And Leslie Leslie didn't comment on it, but she was visibly upset and later told Dwight that she never wanted to see him again. Hannah? Yeah, that she never wanted to see Hannah again. Okay. So Leslie and Dwight spent the day together before going to Leslie's house around 6 p.m. Pretty soon after they arrived, Hannah showed up with flowers and a card that read, Dearest Leslie, I've had a lot of time to think today about how I feel about you. I realize now that I've been smothering you. I know now that you need room to breathe. Leslie, 
I still love you and I want to be yours. And then something you can't really read. And it says, have your love. I would let you have the freedom you want. And I would let you have whoever friends you want, including Dwight. Please just give me another chance to show you I can love you and you could still have your freedom. I love you with all my heart and I'm sorry I ruined your afternoon. No matter what you've decided about us, if you would just have a talk with me, I would appreciate it very much. Please call me at the frontier. Your friend always, Mark. P.S. I would do anything if you would at least talk to me. End, mm. end quotes. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Leslie was not having any of it and told him to stay out of her life. Good. Yeah. After he left, Leslie left with Dwight and she actually spent the night at his home. But around 9 p.m., Hannah showed up at Dwight's house and kicked in the front door and demanded to speak to Leslie. And during a heated argument, Hannah told the two that he had taken out a hit on them. Mm. Yeah. Sure. Like, You're dead meat. I've taken out a hit on you awful. Leslie ran and locked herself in the back bedroom, which is when Hannah decided to pull a pistol from his pocket. (laughs) He pointed it at Dwight and told him to get Leslie to come out to the living room. Dwight explained the situation to Leslie through the locked door, and she reluctantly opened the door and, without speaking, left with Hannah, only wearing a bathing suit, leaving behind the rest of her belongings, including her wallet and shoes. Mm. And none of Leslie's friends or family ever saw her again. I don't like that. Yeah. So, when the whole situation was reported to police, Mark Hanna apparently told detectives a really wild story. And I have no idea how I expected them to believe this. But And, and the only part that I could find was that he said they spent uh, the night together. And after that, <laughs> the next day, he and Leslie went shopping in Ohio. And I don't know what he said after that. There's an extreme lack of information on that. But I'm assuming he said that he probably dropped her off at at her house or something and he left, but that's literally just speculation, so I don't know. Yeah. Unfortunately, extensive efforts by the police to locate her were unsuccessful. Because of what Dwight Norman witnessed, Mark Hanna was charged with convicted burglary, kidnapping, and abduction with intent to defile. Hannah was released on bond on the robbery charge, and investigators actually assumed at that point that Leslie was dead and hoped that he would either return to the place that he buried her or um, let something slip to somebody, but he didn't. At one point, a neighbor told police that they had seen him digging in the front yard of his Williamstown residence, which prompted investigators to dig up the yard, but they didn't find anything. In other instances, officers followed Hannah when he went out to clubs and bars in the area with some undercover officers inside with him in the hopes that he would say something about the location, but never did. Mm -mm. In 1985, he was sentenced to life with the possibility of parole after 10 years on the kidnapping charge and 1 to 15 years for the burglary. Hannah's conviction of abduction with intent to defile was actually overturned in 1989 as the state couldn't prove that he performed any overt act or statement indicating he was sexually motivated in kidnapping Leslie, but his other convictions were upheld. Mm. As a part of the effort to care for Marty's son, um, Leslie, Marty's son, who was five when his mother disappeared, the family had her legally declared dead in 1991. So, although there was no body recovered... Mark Hanna was charged with Leslie's murder in January of 1996, but Wood County Circuit Court Judge George W. Hill dismissed the charge because, yeah. So, Hanna's attorney argued that based on the information that was known or should have been known at the time of the original trial, um, that this constituted double jeopardy. And the ruling was appealed to West Virginia Supreme Court with prosecutors arguing that the kidnapping and the murder were two separate events that took to, took place at two separate times, but that the information needed for the kidnapping trial was crucial for the murder trial, obviously. 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 So the Supreme Court returned the case to Wood County, and before the trial, prosecutors met with Hannah and his attorneys about a plea agreement for a reduced charge of second-degree murder if he would diverge the location of Leslie's body, but he declined, saying he was going to win at trial anyway. Mm. He did not, 
and was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life without parole in 1998. Good. So, after the trial, Hannah started writing letters to one of the prosecutors, Harry Deitzler, Deitzler, asking for information about the case. Deitzler said that he replied to the letter saying he no longer represented the state uh, and suggested to Hannah he do the right thing and reveal the location of Leslie's body, you know, like a good person. Mm-hmm. I just really hate Mark Hanna. Um, because not only was he an abusive asshole who mur- murdered an innocent woman, he also toyed with the prosecutors and Leslie's family for a very, very long, long time. time after yeah. this. Over the years, Hannah acted like he was thinking about providing authorities with the burial site in exchange for a reduced sentence or other considerations, but the authorities actually decided not to make a deal with him each time, which Leslie's family agreed with wholeheartedly. And I know that might sound kind of odd at first to some people, but Mary Brown, Leslie's mother, said we don't want him to have the chance of being out to have the chance to do the same thing to someone else's family member. Mm-hmm. Which is really smart, but also must be a really hard thing to deal with. 100%. So at one point, Hannah did tell Deitzler in the letters that he'd buried Leslie in Washington County, the county just over the state line into Ohio. Mm-hmm. But he never provided the specific location, and yeah. Yeah. So, like, this went in for a very long time. But oddly, and no one knows why, but in the spring of 2018, 35 years after the disappearance of Leslie Marty, Mark Hanna's lawyer contacted the West Virginia television news channel WCHS and said Hannah wanted to do an interview with them and would tell them where her body was. Um, I hope a police officer was present. Well, in September, Hannah and his attorney gave the interview. The attorney produced the photos of the burial site in the former Shell Chemical Employee Park off of Washington Boulevard in Belpre, Ohio, and Hannah marked it on a map and explained the exact route he'd taken to get there. So, based on the interview, police began digging at the site in November, and I was wondering why it took them so long. Like, that's months. Yeah. And then I thought that there was a lot of back and forth between the two police departments because it was, you know, another state. Another um, state, another county. Right, and the FBI was involved, so I thought there was a lot more hurdles that they, they had to go through mm-hmm. in order to actually get permission to excavate the area. Yep. But apparently the biggest thing was that they actually needed to speak with Mark Hanna directly in order to obtain enough information to allow the investigation to continue. And for whatever reason, they couldn't speak to him. It was, like, something to do with the actual, like, prison he was in. I don't mm-hmm. I did, Very weird. Drone footage provided by the sheriff's office helped Hannah narrow down the search area, which he actually hadn't visited since the night he buried Leslie, and two cadaver dogs separately identified that area, which was a good sign for them. That's a great sign, yeah. Agents from the FBI's Cincinnati field office and evidence recovery team accompanied local officers to survey the site, now known as Creighton Creighton Employee Park. Mm -hmm. On November 7th, they began the excavation. The excavation began at 7 a.m., and around 1.30 p.m., pieces of a blanket were discovered, and the team actually began to dig by hand at that point. Yeah. A near-complete set of skeletonized remains was recovered and sent to the Montgomery County Coroner's Office in Ohio. Parkersburg Police Department Chief Joseph Martin said that this was a really rare case for him because of how deep the body was buried. Mm-hmm. He said normally in these types of cases, they're in fairly shallow graves, maybe two to three feet deep at the most. But these remains were like over six feet deep. He wanted to make sure no one was going to get them. Yes. Police informed Leslie's family about the remains that were found. And unfortunately, her father had passed away. But Leslie's sister, Angela Kelly, who was 13 when her sister went missing. She said she logically knew her sister was gone a long time ago, but it only fully sank in when they told her that they recovered remains. She said she was just very happy for her mom because she has a daughter now and couldn't imagine going through what she went through and not knowing where she is the past 35 years. She also said she was proud of herself because she held it together during the phone call with her mom when her mother told her about the remains. 
Mm. Afterwards, she immediately texted her husband and sobbed because she realized that, like, that was it. There was no possibility of her coming back. Mm-hmm. And she said it was sad, but that there was sort of relief at the closure. And while her daughter was convinced, Mary Brown said she needed the scientific proof that it was her before she could buy into another one of Hannah's antics. Because, like, remember, he's been acting like he was going to reveal this location for literally over a decade. Yeah. And then an entire decade and a half before that, or two and a half decades before that. I thought you said 35. So, technically, he only went to jail about 10 years before this for her murder. And before that, it was kidnapping. Okay. and ro- and okay. burglary yep so gotcha okay yep makes, makes sense <laughs> but but literally 35 years so the examination revealed a bathing suit matching the one leslie was last seen wearing a blanket described by hannah and two bullets a forensic dentist was called in and a week later after the remains were found it was confirmed that it was in fact leslie marty Angela Kelly said that Leslie was an awesome sister, that she wanted to be just like her as a kid, and that her son was her world. Uh, She also said she would protect and help anyone if she was your friend. She was your friend regardless of anything. Uh, Her mother said the same, especially if someone was having a bad day, she would just sit and talk with them until they were feeling better about themselves. She loved to help people. She also said that she can only imagine what she would be doing now if she was still here and that it would be something awesome. During that 35 years, the family actually never held a funeral, but on Mm -hmm. Tuesday, December 11th, 2018, the family held a service and visitation at Sunset Memorial Funeral Home in Parkersburg. Instead of flowers, and because Leslie was a victim of domestic abuse, the family asked that donations be made to the Family Crisis Intervention Center in Parkersburg, West Virginia. We've had at least one episode where I've mentioned some resources before, but I'll say it again. Um, Absolutely. For anyone who needs it. If you're looking for ways to help those in domestic abuse situations or if you are in that situation yourself, there are, of course, hotlines for for anyone to call, such as the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233, or you can go online to thehotline.org and chat with someone about whatever situation you or a friend might be in. Thehotline.org also has links with resources if you need help, want to identify abuse, need a plan for safety or uh, local resources, or if you just want to support others or get involved. Some of the biggest ways that you can help is by looking at domestic violence resources in your immediate area, see if shelters are looking for donations, what kind of donations they need, if they need volunteers, and most importantly, listen, listen. With understanding and compassion, don't blame the victim. If someone is in an mm-hmm. abusive relationship, don't ask them why they didn't speak up sooner. Nope. Don't ask them why they stayed and don't ask yeah. them why they put up with that. It doesn't help them and only makes them feel guilty for something they weren't able to control. And we'll put the links for resources in the show notes for anyone who needs them. 100%. I feel for her and I feel for her family. And I'm really glad that he actually did get put in jail. Yes, and it was actually kind of shocking because he there was no body when he went to prison. Mm-hmm. And all they had was the fact that he was witnessed kid- kidnapping her. There was no foolproof like alibi for him. It honestly, <laughs> it was really surprising because today it definitely would not have happened. No. And that was the story of Leslie Diane Marty. I hate that so much. I know. And at one point, a couple of points actually in writing the story, I had to just sort of walk away. Because especially the parts Understandable. With, yeah, especially the parts with her sister, like describing what a kind person she was. She was. Um, she said that she looked up to her uh, a lot as a kid. So it it was it was kind of hard to get through. Yeah. Well, um, hopefully mine will be easier. Yours will be creepier for sure. I don't know about that. No, I didn't get creeped out. Okay. Okay. So um, yeah, my story is that of Indrid Cold, aka the Grinning Man. AKA the smiling man. 
Ahaha. So, my sources are ghosttheory.com, encyclopedia.com, reddit.com, trustnomore.com, cryptids.fandom.com, historicmysteries.com, villains.fandom.com, reddit.com, ycorereport.com, skeptoid.com, and fortiania.blogspot.com. All right. So... It's not what you think it is. Just going to preface that there. The stories that I found that were specific to Smiling Man mm-hmm. were nowhere near related to Indrid Cold. Okay. But the original Smiling Man mm-hmm. is Indrid Cold. Like, I found that story. <laughs> yeah. But then you've got the creepy pastas where people have made their own stories, and it's nothing like no, not similar at all Mm-mm. Huh. nope okay so we're just gonna just hop right in we're just gonna take a little trip back to one of our very first episodes on mothman it is regarding the mysterious man known as indrid cold indrid cold is most often associated with ufo activity and is believed to be either an alien or that he is connected with the men in black. Mm. I did not go into the men in black aspect because that was going to be way too much. Fair enough. And with, like, the amount of time you had to write. That's also yeah. the men in black as a whole separate story that does need to be covered. Yeah. He is human-like in appearance, unnaturally tall, dressed in a long, shiny, metallic green or blue coat. He is... I forgot about the coat. Sometimes bald... More often than not, he has his hair slicked back and just, you know, super creepy looking with his smile that stretches from one ear to the other. The original report on this super fascinating man happened one night in October of 1966. James Yanchittis, I do apologize, I know for a fact that was probably wrong, but that is what Google said, and Martin Mouse Munov were walking home along 4th Street in Elizabeth, New Jersey. They had reached a street corner, which was, you know, just opposite of a local landmark called the Turnpike. This was a very elevated area with a high wire fence and a steep incline. Apparently, a man just appeared behind a bush on the opposite side of the fence. He stood there, staring at the boys, and just grinned from ear to ear. According to them, he had a dark complexion, round, beady eyes set far apart, and they couldn't recall seeing any hair, ears, or a nose. That same night, there was a UFO reported several miles away and at several different locations throughout New Jersey. It was blinding white light that darted through the sky and behind hills. It was reported by civilians and police officers alike. Think about that. How many times do police officers right. note that's that stuff? Because it's a risk to their job, for one. Yeah. That's why I always love the, um, like, Air Force witness accounts. reports. Yeah, yeah. Witness accounts of UFOs. Because it's like, why would they lie about that? They are gold. So the most known story of Indrid Cold is the one that I briefly touched on during the Mothman episode. So it's about a month after the first sightings, multiples because there were multiples, sewing machine salesman Woodrow Derenberger was driving home after a long day of work on November 2nd, 1966. At around 7 p.m., he had reached a hill just outside of Parkersburg, West Virginia on Interstate 77. As he was driving, a sewing machine had become dislodged in the back of his van, so he had to make an unexpected stop in order to set it back in place. He pulled over to the side of the road, leaving enough room for other commuters to get through. The sewing machine was luckily undamaged, so he resituated it and returned to the driver's seat to continue on his way. He didn't get much further down the road when two headlights passed him and began to slow down once they were in front of him. Derenberger was forced to come to another stop, this time in the middle of the road. His first thought was this could possibly have been a police car pulling him over for going under the speed limit because now he was just going super slow trying not to, you know, lose any more equipment in the back of his car. Right. And that they would force him to take a sobriety test. However, he dismissed this thought when he realized that the vehicle he was looking at was not a car at all. In fact, it was more kerosene lamp-shaped with a central bulge and kind of flared edges. 
The door to this vehicle slid open and a man emerged. To Darren Berger, he was average in many ways. He had a deep tan that was unusual for the time of year and dark hair that was slicked back. But the most striking thing about his appearance was the broad grin that the man had on his face. And of course, the man was heading straight for him. The closer he got, Darren Berger was able to note that the man wore a dark overcoat with a metallic green uniform underneath. The man walked towards Darren Berger, and his vehicle then levitated to about 50 feet above the highway. When he reached Darren Berger's car, he identified himself as Indrid Cold and claimed that he came from a place less powerful than the United States. I don't know why he specified that. Less but powerful. Maybe to make it seem like, oh, you know, I'm not a threat. Probably, yes. Because he assured Darren Berger that he was flesh and blood just like him and in no way special or spectacular. I forgot about so much of this. I didn't mention this part in Mothman. That's why. <laughs> no, but I've, I've heard this before. But I, well, I've heard certain parts of it. And I know it's been covered on at least one of the other podcasts that I listened to. But I don't remember like half of this. I, I didn't <laughs> remember the kerosene lamp-shaped not car. I Not car, yep. They exchanged a few pleasantries, generalities, uh, such as where the next exit was. Because, you know, he's you an alien. Know, what do you need to know that for? You're literally flying a giant <laughs> kerosene lamp. I... Indrid Cold then encouraged Darren Berger to tell the authorities about this encounter. He also told him that this would not be the last encounter that they would have, as he wanted to know more about the human race. What? While all of this is super <laughs> flesh sketch... and blood just like you. <laughs> but can you, could you perhaps tell me your, <laughs> your personal opinions and facts that you about know about humans? So while all of this is super sketch, the weirdest part about this whole conversation was that it was held telepathically. <gasps> Not a single word was spoken aloud between the two. Indrid Cold then walked back to his vehicle which had now descended back to the highway in order to re-enter before it quickly and silently rose into the sky. That same night, two other men on the exact same road reported seeing an elongated object land in front of their vehicle. They were also forced to stop and watched as a man exited the vehicle and walked towards them. He wore a dark coat and seemed to ask the men, as they said, pointless questions before he returned to the craft and took off. He did, however, keep his promise to Derenberger. He visited the Derenberger home many times, and in October of 1967, his now ex-wife spoke about their multiple encounters with Indrid Cold to journalist Ray Palmer. I would literally never tell a single person I ever met anyone like this. I would tell certain people, not a journalist. Maybe a therapist. True. She claimed that they meaning Indrid Cold and others like him, were not only making contact around Vest... Vest? We are in Transylvania now. One, two, three, <laughs> three smiling men. Ah, ah, ah. That's fantastic. <laughs> uh, they were not only making contact around West Virginia. Apparently, they would get in contact with people all over the U.S., but the people in West Virginia were just more receptive to communication with extraterrestrials. Okay, okay. According to Mrs. Derenberger, on the night of November 4th, Indrid Cold had told her that he was from a planet called Lanolos, which was located near the galaxy Ginamendes. He also told her that his planet was similar to ours in many ways, that they had woods, streams, fields, oceans everything. They had even taken samples of our vegetation and animals. Indrid Cold, along with the rest of the people on his planet, are time travelers whole. Oh. The Derenbergers did meet two others from Lanulos, Dimo Hassan and Carl Ardo. Derenberger claims that the reason the beings cannot stay here for too long is because they get younger while they are here on Earth rather than aging, and that their lifespan is roughly 125 to 175 years. Sorry, they Benjamin Button themselves? Yeah, they Benjamin Button themselves. Okay. So, they haven't seen it, like the Derenbergers haven't seen it, mm. but they have this theory that if 
Indrid Cold and the others like him stayed for too long, then they would just poof out of existence. So this is a theory. This isn't some something that has been told to them. Yes. Or is that not specifically, like, said? It's not specifically said. It is said to the Darren Burkers that they will age backwards oh, okay, while okay, on okay. Earth. But it's it's a theory that they'll just go poof if they're there for too oh, long. They go poof. Okay. That they okay. go poof. They just they disappear. No longer exist. According to Injured Cold via the Derenbergers, the galaxy of Genomendeas was originally settled by the people of Earth who traveled there by spaceships. Which means, you know, from long, long ago people have had spaceships. Or if they're time travelers, maybe future humans. But see, and then they go back in time. But see, what Android Cold told the Derenbergers is that they arrived to their galaxy and their planet via space travel, but then forgot about it until just recently when they started visiting again. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's okay. The people of Lanulus are also apparently religious. They believe in one god, the father of all, and the creator of all that is good. While most of the time the people of Lanulos communicate telepathically, they do in fact have a language. According to Derenberger, the written language is kind of... Asian-like? Okay. Like, I don't know a better way to say that. Because he said oriental. And I don't like that phrasing. No. Um, so maybe in, like, it's got similar shape, but I mean, there's so many different... Yeah. I'm assuming what he would know of is Chinese or Japanese, so maybe he means more shape, similar, because they are also different. I They are, they're so different, but they didn't get much... But I guess if you don't know the difference, then they would look pretty similar, so I guess maybe that's... Yeah. Okay. But anyway, their their written language is apparently Asian-like. Okay. So I, I don't know what the actual language sounds like, but they can communicate telepathically in English, so who the heck knows? Um, they've adopted a non-hostile manner and have no crime or war on their planet. Okay. That sounds pretty nice. That would explain why he's smiling all the time. Mm-hmm. However, when they attempted to make contact with Earth in order to establish trade with us, you know, once they've discovered their mm-hmm. outer space travel, they were apparently met with hostility. Go figure. So shocking. I'm not, not, I'm, I'm so shocked. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> Truly. Very shocked. And government officials were unwilling to guarantee the Lenulosian people's safety. In fact, Indrid Cold had shown Derenberger a gunshot wound he had received. Well, if some creepy dude started running up on me, uh, not speaking and <laughs> only communicating telepathically, I might, I might get a little freaked out. Just, just a little, you know, just teensy bit. The people have no need for clothing on the planet. And tend to walk around in the nude. In fact, when Darren Berger apparently visited the planet. Oh, he visited. Okay. He visited the planet with Indrid Cold. I could not find the original account of this, so I don't know how authentic it is. But when he visited the planet, he was given weird looks because of his clothing. So he soon adopted nudity in order to blend in. Okay. As, as you do. You adopt customs when you visit places, so, you know, good on him. Open-minded. After these two incidents in November of 1966, the story of injured cold became a big one. And suddenly, multiple witnesses were coming forward under anonymity to talk about the lights and strange alien creatures that were popping up, shown around. And that is, I'm assuming, it's purely speculation, how we got to our third sighting of Indrid Cold. So in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, the Lily family began noticing poltergeist activity in and around their home. This also included diamond-shaped lights appearing and disappearing in the sky. One night, the Lily's daughter, Linda, was awoken out of a deep sleep to see a man standing at the end of her bed. Uh, Nope, no thank you. She described him as a big man. And although she couldn't see his face very well, she could see that he was grinning at her. No, no thank you. Absolutely not. When he walked around the side of her bed and stood over her, she screamed and hid under the covers. The natural response. When she looked... The, a very natural response. 
But when she looked again, he was gone. So she ran to her mother, told her mother there was a man in her room. When her mother came and checked, there was no one. So, unfortunately, this last sighting, I don't really feel. You're not, you're not, you're, is the actual. Oh, uh, okay. Indrid cold. Um, this, like I said, purely a speculation on this one. Definitely a poltergeist, like they said. But because of all the supposed stories in the paper at the time of yeah. the man who smiles. Right. I feel like she probably could have projected that onto her poltergeist in a dreamlike state. Yeah, I would say, like, sleep paralysis, but she literally hid under the covers, so, yeah. 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 But, you know, I'm not an expert. Could be him, could also not be him. In the years since, there have been a few sporadic reports of Indrid Cold and or other grinning, smiling men. One of them was made popular by Redditor Blue Title in April of 2012. In the story the Blue Title tells, they tell of how once their housemate goes to sleep at night, they tend to take a midnight stroll to just, you know, take some me time, meditate, think about their day. And that they had done this for four years with no problems. Until one night when they were walking and they encountered a man who was sort of dance walking towards them on the sidewalk. This is the one that I know the most. Mm Mm-hmm. So initially... The Redditor thought that this man was drunk, so they, you know, they scooched to the very edge of the sidewalk to try and give them space to pass. Normal thing to do, you don't want them to get near you, but you let them through. See some weirdo dancing in the road in the middle of the night, you're like, (laughs) I'm good. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to go near them, but you will allow them to pass. However, the closer they got to this weird dance walking man, the more that they realized the motions were too fluid to be that of a drunkard. They noticed that the man was tall and lanky, wore wore an old suit, and had his eyes wide open and constantly staring at the sky with a painfully wide smile. No. The Redditor wrote, Between the eyes and the smile, I decided to cross the street before he danced any closer. Good idea. However, when they glanced back at where they had just been standing, they noticed that the man had stopped dancing and was standing with one foot in the street parallel to them. So this is obviously very concerning. Mm -hmm. The Redditor then looks forward and continues on their way for a little bit and breathes a sigh of relief when they look back to find the man is not there. Oh, God, this is making me anxious. Okay. Except he is crouching in the street, still doing that weird smile grin thing. The Redditor stared at him for a moment and surprisingly stayed standing there while the man quickly sprinted to about a car's length away from them. It had to have been shock. Like, I don't know how he did it. The Redditor tried to ask, what the fuck are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) But it only came out as, what the (laughs) fuck? Exactly, yes. The man then began to dance his, you know, dance walk again. This time back the way he came, giving, you know, just the slightest bit of relief to the Redditor until he was almost out of sight. Until they realized he was coming back again. At full running speed, the Redditor noped the fuck out of there and ran back to their apartment, glancing behind them the entire way, hoping that the man was not following them. He did not, luckily. That's why you don't go for midnight walks. (laughs) No. No, no, no. You don't. You stay in your house when it gets dark. It's dangerous to go outside at night. If you do decide to go out, have, like, pepper spray, uh, something to defend yourself... I live in the middle of nowhere. I don't like going out at night. Yeah. A lot of comments on this thread were along the lines of, I have found the best way to keep someone away from me while walking at night is to act like a crazy person. I found the best way to. And they'll keep away from me. avoid me when I'm walking at night is to not walk at night. (laughs) Well, yeah. No, but Um, yeah, uh, crazy person I've heard works really, really well. Yeah, especially referring to, you know, the strange dance walking. So... Yeah, if I see someone doing that, I'm definitely oh my God. beelining the opposite. Doing that wide-ass smile on their face, I would pee myself. Yes, but also, you know, most Americans really don't like making contact with strangers. That's why we all do the awkward smile thing. Anyway, the story just blew up on the internet and renewed interest in Indrid Cold, and it's ultimately how he became associated with the smiling okay. man. But I also found one comment that was posted on cryptids.fandom.com by user Sam Wham on December 27th, 2020. 
So this is recent. And it may have solved the case on Indrid Cold and the Smiling Man. Apparently, they have a family friend whose name is Kindred Cod. Oh. Who liked to travel a lot. He was a Canadian Inuit. Oh, okay. Sporting very native features. You know, the wide nose, the wide set eyes, the small eyes, the darker complexion. And according to the poster, he was a pleasant and friendly man who would always smile even when it really wasn't appropriate. Okay. He even liked sneaking up behind people and scaring them. No. He had a cheeky attitude, a heart of gold, and liked to steal candy from shops and play pranks on people. That's... Mm. Hmm. According to the poster, Mr. Cod liked to travel and was actually in the places of the two first sightings. What? Do they have proof of this? He apparently told them himself long before the sightings became public knowledge. Mm. And these were only two of a long list of similar encounters. The poster said that they're really surprised there's not more floating out there with how often he did this. The man has unfortunately since passed, but the family still has the metallic blue-green zoot suit that he used to frequently wear. Huh. So, he got the suit, he got the smiling, he got the dark complexion. That's really interesting. Yeah. So, I don't know how true it is, but if it is, then Indrid Cold was just an old guy who liked to play pranks. And it kind of makes sense. Uh, Kind of. That's pretty fucking creepy. Um, it's definitely creepy. Well, but also, especially since there really haven't been many sightings of the Smiling Man since about the 70s, -hmm. except for this one in 2012 that I found that apparently blew the internet up. Right. Which honestly could be some dude on bath salts in Florida. I don't know. (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. Especially because he was like bald, I think is what they said. What does being bald have to do with bath salts? No, no, no. Bald as in he didn't match the other descriptions. Gotcha. I was like, what does that have to do with Florida or bath salts? Jesus. (laughs) Because it's so hot, you just want to shave your hair off. No. I also have to mention that there are a few books written about Indrid Cold. He was first mentioned in The Mothman Prophecies by John Keel. Uh, John Keel also wrote another book in which Indrid is the entire subject of chapter 14, and that is Strange Creatures from Time and Space. However, a lot of researchers have a hard time believing everything written in Keel's books because he did not really use many sources oh, yeah. regarding specifically the Indrid Cold case. He also didn't give details regarding how he came to know about the experiences that people had. And, you know, it's one of those I unfortunately have to agree with the researchers because even while doing my own research, everything just kept pointing back to his books and I did not yeah. like that. And then there are also two books written by um, Darren Berger, which I kind of want to read. Do you, though? I mean, that's how... Mm, I do. Okay. If you do, I let do, me know how they I are. I don't. That dude sounds like he went, yeah. he went through some wild shit. Yeah, they are Visitors from Melanulos, My Contact with Indrid Cold, and Beyond Lanulos, Our 50 Years with Indrid Cold. Like, entire books just dedicated to... This man and their, the shit they get up to. Okay. So that is, and I do apologize, there's no real ending. The ending was supposed to be the fact that that gentleman who makes sense it could be him has passed. And that's why we don't have really sightings. Fair. Yeah. I do hear, um, like I messaged you earlier today or yesterday or something about how I hear a lot about the uncanny valley effect when people talk about injured cold. And I've never heard of you've that. Never heard of that. Okay, no. so the uncanny valley—it's a hypothesized relationship between. This is the Wikipedia definition, basically. It's a hypothesized relationship between the degree of an object's resemblance to a human being and the emotional response to that object. So, like the concept suggests oh. that humanoid objects, which imperfectly, like imperfectly resemble actual human beings provoke uncanny or strangely familiar feelings of eeriness and revulsion so for example the one that people talk about the most often is the like really deeply unsettling feeling they get when they watch the polar express oh and see that's not what i was thinking of that's i was thinking of like 
clothes in the chair. No, no, it's like... <laughs> and seeing something. That's the other it's thing. It's not humanoid object. It's like things that l- specifically look like humans. That like, look like humans, Like the yeah. AI, like robots that look eerily like humans. Like they're so close, but they're, they're off. They... And I guess I get it, but it's also one of those things that I kind of don't because they don't creep me out. There, but I understand it creeps a lot of people. Yeah, it's out. um. Some people have theorized that it's because there is no emotion. No, um, um, for some people it doesn't bother them at all, but for others it there's the theory that there were human-like creatures that we lived with that we developed a fear response to. And so that is what that is, which I think is really interesting. Um, Okay. I think the Uncanny Valley more stems from a more, like, anthropological stance as opposed to just a conspiracy theory. Could it also be that inherent, I mean, obviously that inherent fear, but, like, the Neanderthals and the, the first humans and their constant fighting. I mean, and that's totally possible, but, I mean, there are a bunch of people who are like, well, I've got Neanderthal DNA and I don't have this, or I do have Neanderthal DNA and I don't have this or I do have this. It's just back and yeah. forth and it doesn't seem like there's any, like, real specific reason why that specific person would have that response. So, yeah. I don't know. I just think it's really, really weird because when I look at, like, AI and the way that they talk, even looking at like wax figures that are supposed mm-hmm. to look like it, it's off. It looks wrong. Like it, it's weird. Yeah. Now I don't like wax figures, but I think that's because um, I can tell they can't move, and I'm just like paranoid. It's gonna pull yes. a whole weeping angel thing. Yes. Um, yeah. There's that, and then, but I don't have the feeling with the Polar Express the way that my dad does because no. my dad cannot watch yeah. the Polar Express. He, he, they creep him out. But I'm fine with yeah. the Polar Express. I watch it every year. See, same book. I can't. I mean, I can watch Polar Express, but the mannequins and God, I hate. I'm gonna blame Doctor Who that first episode of Doctor Who for my irrational fear of mannequins. I mean, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> Okay, if you all enjoyed that at all, and we hope you did, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Myths and Misfortunes. Or you can follow us on Twitter at Miss Misfortune, or you can just search for us using the full name, Miss Misfortunes. We'll be there. Be, be there, there, be square. square. Sorry. You can also send us an email to mythsandmisfortunes at gmail.com, and please check out our website, mythsandmisfortunes.com. Our theme music was composed by McKean Fulbright, and our art was created by Heather Marie Atkins. Their websites can be found in the description below. And please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It would mean a lot to us. Um, we really, really appreciate you and all. We, we appreciate you all so much. Um, we have also received a few requests about Patreon. And I do want to say we have a Patreon account, but we've not activated it yet because... Yeah, as much as we enjoy what we do and as much as that money would help us with equipment and, I mean, better and keeping programs. keeping the website up and yeah, running. Stuff like yeah. that. Um, I think we just currently aren't there yet personally we we, yeah we aren't we aren't there yet we also just we want to do this for fun yeah but uh we are still doing our best and we hope you will appreciate it and we appreciate you all thanks so much for listening guys goodbye goodbye